Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a little thing like a brain tumor derail me. When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired, I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being grounded and centered. It's a mecca for cycling, for sure. Struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold chills. And it's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful. Hey everyone, I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. I'm super excited to present this week's In the Company of Friends talk with my friend Melanie Morose Edelstein. She's a teacher librarian and information specialist, a former journalist, as well as an Emmy Award winning television news producer who currently is a writer for Palos Verdes magazine and a personal historian among her many impressive talents. She is the CEO and personal historian at Legends and Legacies, writing firsthand personal account histories for private clients. And she's, of course, an avid reader and champion of literacy. I'm so excited to have her on the program today. I'm going to go ahead and get right into this talk because it is quite lengthy. We cover a lot about the news and Melanie's career, things like how news consumption and focus and availability has changed over the years. And then we go into that second career as a librarian and her love in fostering kids' reading habits, how to find books that we love, but most especially how to help kids find books that they're going to like, including using something that's called the five-finger rule of reading. So go ahead and grab a cuppa and join us for this week's In the Company of Friends with Melanie Morose Edelstein, just to give you some context because I started the recording mid-conversation. We are talking about gratitude here at the beginning and just kind of creating peace in our lives during these hectic times. So that's where we're gonna start, enjoy. I really do try to be conscious of exactly that. Like in my life all the time, I'm conscious of trying to, you know, kind of like live in the the gratitude and the light as much as I can, because otherwise it feels so overwhelmed. Like, so I make it a point to, to um, try to share stories. Like that's what I really I want to do, I want to always, like every day, share something good or a story or learn something or read about something, even if it's fiction or I love stories to get me out of the the cycle of this world and this upside down. And I could really get lost in the rabbit hole of that. I could fall down into that vortex and just be, you know, I could read heavily into the news. I was a news producer. And so I'm a bit of a news junkie. And my husband works in the news. And is, he's a, a production sound mixer and uh, an engineer for NBC News. So he is in the thick of it. So we could be lost in that. 
and I have been lost in like that news cycle Mm -hmm. and where I haven't even been able to like, you know, function in my everyday life. But I've come to a place where my kids are grown and I'm not as frantic as I once was. You know, I'm not as busy, you know, raising them and rushing from one thing to the next and making sure that they have everything and, you know, so much tending to their every single need that I am now like consciously trying to take care of myself more and honor my hobbies and my interests and what I think is important and what I think I'm good at. That's so important. You can get Mm -hmm. really lost, like the you can get really lost in the world that we live in that is just constantly there, like you said, with the news cycle. And it's important. Yeah, I mean, I I have been um, really lost in it before. I mean, I have been. So the fact that I'm not right now, and that I'm like more living in the light, which I have been, is good. But it's it's not just because um, I'm lucky. It's because I'm really super conscious of it. And I work really super hard at it. Like, uh, we lost my dad in COVID. Mm-hmm. And um, it was the most awful thing that's ever happened to me. It was terrible. It was, uh, it was the darkest days of COVID. And uh, it was- you weren't even allowed to be there from what I remember. Right. And the years were full and they weren't even accepting patients. There was no beds anywhere. We weren't even supposed to be near him. On like a Monday, he was fine. And on the following Sunday, he was gone. And um, he, he was like, it was just, he, it was terrible. It was really, really awful. And he had this terrible fever. And then he just were like, what? The worst part probably was that we we couldn't properly mourn him. I, I have a, I'm a big family. I'm the oldest daughter. But I have an older brother. There's four of us. And my parents have 12 grandchildren. Wow. So we're just this big, um, very, very close family. And we're Jewish. And after you lose somebody, you're supposed to have a burial and then sit shiva and then everybody comes and they bring food and it's more like a celebration Mm -hmm. of life than it is you know you honor and it's supposed to be like a three-day affair at the house and you know my dad's very successful now the whole community would come but we were stuck it was my mom and my siblings and not even his siblings could come and nobody nobody there were 10 people allowed at his funeral so that was like so awful so heavy and terrible being denied that tradition that he deserved right oh my god it was so hard for my mom oh my god so to honor a man who you know we think is the greatest man ever to live um we were very challenged with that and i uh, I was in from out of town and I was staying in my mom's house and my mom and dad were both positive for COVID and my sisters were freaking out because they were not sure what was going on. And he passed away like on a, on a Sunday, we buried him on a Wednesday and then Wednesday night, I like lost my mind and I'm like, I caught a plane home. I thought, oh my God, what if I have COVID? What if I, it was like a, a breakdown. So I, I was complete mess. And I was so lost. 
and I was, I couldn't think straight and I couldn't, you know, it was terrible. That grief, not just of losing your dad, but losing your traditional ways of handling something like that, because that was a very uncertain time. That was, everybody was scared. Oh my gosh, it was a terrible moment. Everybody was scared and all the, everybody was wearing full-blown PPE and it was like, what is this for? It was like a... I, was, I felt like I was living in a, a dystopian novel that, you know, it was really surreal. And I was really, really lost when I came back because everybody thought maybe I had COVID. So I had to do one of those 10 day quarantines. So for, I was alone. I was not, none of my, my kids, my husband, nobody went with me or quarantine for those were the days when we were like wiping off our groceries you know so I we are fortunate because I have a guest house so I stayed down in the guest house my family was like fixing food and putting it on the table outside and texting me and then (laughs) I leaving it and I was going out the door and getting it and we weren't it was it was absolute insanity and so I went for 10 days like that and I was never positive, but nobody, you know, there was no rapid test. I mean, it was like a different world. It was crazy. Yeah. It was so it really nuts. Was. Oh, my God. And it messed with me. Oh, wow. I am so sorry that you went through all of that. It's I do remember that. And it, it was yes. really heartbreaking. Um, it, just such uncertainty of that time. Um, and then the expectation that we were going to see so many people that were close to us uh, pass away. So I'm really sorry. But I did want to ask you to tell the story about the family tree, because I had come in one day to talk to you. I was super excited about reading The Understory by Richard Power. It's such a beautiful book that somehow manages to intertwine the love that the trees are the primary character. And I love gardening. I love the outdoors. I'm a self-professed tree hugger. So we started talking about this and you told me about that family forest that you have in Israel. Oh, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> so yes. Well, in the understory, first of all, yeah, well, it won the Pulitzer. So yeah, right. I think it's pretty powerful. It's a great book, but, um, when something happens in our lives, in the lives of my family, we plant a tree in Israel in honor of it, whether it be a death, a graduation, uh, a birth, uh, anything that you can think of that you want to honor somebody, you can plant a tree in Israel and you can go to Israel and visit your trees. It's it's not unique to my family. It's a it's a thing that Jews do. I think I don't know. I don't. It's not unique to my family. I know it's not, but it is a cool thing. See, I guess at one point um, there are there are not a lot of trees. It's the desert, right? right. And uh, after there was, I don't know. I wish I knew the history better. Just things that I don't. But um, there there was like all of this deforestation, and there were no trees. There were no trees. There were no trees. So you can't survive with no trees and we need trees. So this is our homeland. So 
people started planting trees, like massively planting trees. And, you know, we have something called Sadaka, which is like charity, I guess, is what that translates to. So it's one of the tenets of, you know, like good deeds and giving and charity. So somebody does something uh, wonderful or you want to honor them, then you can do Sadaka and you get like a little plaque and it says a tree in Israel has been planted and it tells you the, the name of, uh, you know, like the area. It actually gives you the, the longitude and the latitude of where your tree is. That's so beautiful. <laughs> so then if you make your way to Israel, you can see the tree that you have planted in honor of your, you know, your family or your friend or whatever. Yeah. Not, it is nice. It's a nice thing. It is. <laughs> I just love that idea. When you told me that, I thought it was the most. Yeah wonderful it thing is. I had heard. Thank you. That is a beautiful thing. I, I do yeah. love that. I I have a bunch of nieces and nephews that are all graduating right now. And what was I doing right before this? Like, what am I going to get Annie for her graduation? And you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to go plant a tree for everybody. I love it. And I'm about to go do this right now. You're the best. That's so sweet. Oh, that's so awesome. I love it. And it's called Sedaka? Sedaka. T-Z-E-D-A-K-A-H. Sedaka. And we used when I was a kid in Sunday school, we had like a Sedaka box. And so we would always put our like coins in there so that... The definition is charitable giving, typically seen as a moral obligation. A common form of sadaka is to allocate a portion of the harvest for the poor. So maybe that's where the trees come in. But it's like mandated giving, righteousness, and the concept of not really charity, but, you know, it's kind of like the... Right. It's, the it's a, to honor meaning. somebody, too, it sounds right. like. Right. Like it's beyond charity. There's there's honor right. in there. It's giving. It's just like an honoring, uh, a giving, uh, extending, I think, mm-hmm. congratulations. I think it's all of the above. That's interesting about uh, the word Sadaka. It's kind of like the word shalom, which can mean hello or goodbye or love or peace. So maybe some of these words, maybe Sadaka has many, like, varied meanings as well multiple meanings to Mm -hmm. it i love that i love Mm -hmm. that so um i'm just gonna go just go to it on a left turn here (laughs) um so you earned a degree in broadcast journalism and Mm -hmm. even as you were earning it you became a journalist as you mentioned you were a news producer how did you get your start? What made you decide to go towards journalism? Is that something that you always wanted to do? Um, no, I want. I wanted to be uh, like an actress. And my dad said, I'm not going to send you to college to be an actress. No way. That can't be your major. So I thought I love to read. I I knew I was a good reader and a good writer. And I was like, okay, well, I could go into journalism. Maybe I'll be like a reporter. I could be on camera. Yeah. Right? That was like my 18-year-old self (laughs) thinking. (laughs) Okay, I'll just, I'll I'll go into that because, A, it takes no math. (laughs) I don't want to have anything to do with any degree that has any math in it because it cannot add. And I don't (laughs) understand numbers. So I was like, okay, no math. 
Plus, maybe I'll be able to get famous, like, by being on camera. Yeah. Plus, I could read and I could write. I'm like, okay, so I'll do journalism. Maybe I was like, okay, off you go. So I chose broadcast journalism. And then I realized I didn't really want to be on camera. I was like, oh, no, that's not really for me. I couldn't do that. I was like, <laughs> I was like no, no, no. I want to write that. I realized that the power is really behind the scenes. That's where the words come from. That's where the decisions are made. So I'm like, I want to be like a behind the scenes sort of power player. I don't need to be on camera anymore. I don't, I don't need that. And I went into television and I worked. I was living in Tampa, Florida, and I worked for the NBC affiliate WSLA there. And I started as a uh, 6 a.m. associate producer. And my shift used to be from midnight to like, you know, 10 a.m. Oh and then we would, it was terrible. And I hated the hours, but I loved the rush of producing the news. It was like really great for me because I'm a bit of a control freak. So I went from a social producer to a producer on the early morning show. And then they moved to a noon broadcast. Then I eventually started doing a 5 p.m. and a 6 p.m. and an 11 p.m. All this local news. So I, I really enjoyed that. And then I got lucky because this general manager that I had worked for in Tampa, he moved to LA to begin KKL9 News. And it was to be the first local 24-hour news in the country. And they were kind of modeling themselves after like a CNN. So this guy, Jim Saunders, moved to L.A. Um, the station used to be KHJ, and it was purchased by Disney. And Disney hired Jim Saunders to build, like, this revolutionary television studio, news production palace type of thing. So Jim went around the country and plucked around all the people that he knew, and he hired me. He said, come to L.A. Wow. and produce for me. I was like, okay. I'm on the way. Here we go. And they moved me. And so I worked for Disney. So it was like the golden years. So they moved me across the country, lock, stock, and barrel. They wined and dined me. It was like, oh like my a God. Fairy tale. Maybe I will be famous after all. So they found me a location person who helped me find my own place. Anyway, they really treated me well. I came to work for uh, KCAL. I was in the very first class of hires, and they were located on the Paramount lot. And we had two sound stages that they had converted into make our um, newsroom and studio spaces in there. And so I lived right on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Vine, and I could walk to the Paramount Studios, and I was like living the dream. It was great. I won a couple of Emmys working for them. It was tons of fun. It was amazing. Good times. Great success. My husband was, he was my boyfriend in Florida. I'm like, going to LA. See ya. Love ya. And I'm like, uh, so six months later, he's like, how is it out there? Should I come? I'm like, I don't know. It's great. Come if you want to. Don't come if you don't want to. Showed up. Wow. A couple of years later, we got married. Here we are, 31 years later, still married. 
So KCAL was really fantastic. I, I mean, it was just a, it was a really wonderful experience. Three Emmy nominations, one win. What, what were, were there particular stories that drew the attention to your talents? I mean, I just think, yeah, I'm a good writer. Mm-hmm. And I worked for a guy, you know, who really believed in me, who really liked me when I was young. And he, he he was like a mentor kind of guy. He's like, I know you can do this, and I want you to come out here and do this. I got lucky because he was moving around, and he got this KCAL thing. And I mean, it's about how talented you are, certainly. I would never deny myself that. But it's, it's a lot about what you know and how savvy are you. And, you know, I got lucky. I don't know. It was great. I was fantastic. It was definitely a really cool, amazing situation until it wasn't. So I was working and rocking it. And I went from producer to an executive producer and to then field producing where I was on the field. And my husband is a production uh, sound engineer. So we're both in the same business and got married and continued to work. And then had my first child, came back to work. I got pregnant with my second and uh, I had a full-time nanny at home and I was paying her like, you know, the hours were absolutely insanity. I was working as like a, an executive producer at that time. And when the news broke, you worked. I mean, it's not a business for the faint of heart and it's really hard for like a new mom. I'm like, have two kids. What am I doing? Like I'm on the freeway, I'm schlepping up to Burbank and I'm traveling, chasing the news. And so is my husband. And two people in the same business in this business doesn't make for uh, for an easy marriage. And we were paying half of our salary to our nanny, who was at my house 12, 14 hours a day. And I was like, what am I doing? You know, I don't know that I really want to do this anymore. I want to do something else. And then like the, the, the universe intervened because there was a job opening and me and a man who I was hired with, he was in my class, we were hired at the exact same moment in time, same education, same trajectory in the company. And we're both working. We both got married around the same time, but he never took maternity leave, of course. So he had two children, same age. And my husband and I are friends with him. And it's not about him. He's a great guy. We're still friends. But we both were up for a position of like an executive producer of just a big job, more money, big job. And I'm like, okay, I deserve this job. And I think maybe I'm going to just keep doing this and I'll be able to afford my nanny more. And I'm going to do this. And so I was in an interview and uh, the guy says to me, you know, I know you and I know him. And listen, I've worked with your husband. I know your husband. And I look at that ring on your finger and I think to myself, he needs the job more than you do. I was like, really? Oh. So he, it was, it was a stunning like blow. Like, uh, you know, this is in the early nineties. So oh, how painful you know, that kind of sexism. Uh-huh. It was terrible. You know, but I, I never would thought for a minute, but he said, I'll never forget it. He said, I know your husband. I know you guys. I look at that ring on your finger. I know where you live. This other guy, Paul, he needs this job more than you do. And I was just like, absolutely stunned. Because really, he didn't know a damn thing about me or whatever. No, and those are the moments that are so 
painful. You know, we think we, we keep hearing things like, you know, oh. you've come a long way, baby. And yes, we have come a long way from a certain point. But when you end up in those situations like that, you are so keenly aware of the box that we are as women constantly put into. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's no question that, you know, you, I mean, I was just, I am not one to not know what to say. I, but I was absolutely paralyzed. I don't remember how it all played out. I just remember that I felt so sick that I thought I was going to throw up, mm-hmm. that I left there going, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, this is gross. I don't see my kids, you know, yeah, it was a nice paycheck and, you know, I didn't want it anymore. And that was like the moment was like, no way. I'm not, I'm done. So they gave the job to this other guy and I quit and I'm going to see what it's like to like freelance work. And I did, I was really happy with the freelance thing. I had my kids, I could be home when I wanted to with them. It was great. I covered the Olympics. I went to Sydney, oh, Australia as a, as a producer for the, the Olympics. And I did some very cool stories and I worked for Dateline, NBC and the Today Show. And so it was good. I transferred sort of over into a little bit more national news. I got out of local news. That was really good. I was home with my kids. And then I was like, well, but I didn't really want to do the NBC thing anymore. I just, I got so like into being around my kids. I remember getting called for a story going, you know, I don't remember one of them had, you know, I don't know what she had, some recital or something like that. And I was like, I don't really want to go work. I want to be home. So I slowed out of that and I started writing for just like the LA Times, the Daily Breeze, some local magazines. And that was good for a while. And then I was one day, my oldest was in, in, I think, maybe second grade. And I was volunteering in the library one day. And I was like, this would be fun. Like, I like this school library. This is a good vibe in here. I can handle this. And I found out that there was a job opening. And so I went interviewed. And he's like, what are you doing here? Like, you're way overqualified for this. I'm like, I know. But this is kind of what I'm involved into. And I really want to do it. So he said, okay, you're hired. You know, definitely it has been a labor of love for me. I love books. I love the kids. I love the vibe. I do love being a librarian. I teach speech and debate and I'm teaching a summer school class for the first time this year. I've never taught a full summer school class. So it's exciting. It's kind of like the evolution. It's very conscious and very like real. Now the kids are grown and the kids are out of the house. And so I want to get back to doing writing, which I am. I I really do like it. I really do like it. It's great work. It keeps me busy. It feels meaningful. And that is my goal like going forward is just making sure that my work is meaningful to others and to me, for sure. It's important to me. It is important. I always say that... When you find meaning in life, that's when you find your purpose. And Mm -hmm. from finding your purpose is where you find contentment. You know, everybody's always chasing happiness with dollars and happiness is elusive. You have to find meaning and purpose before you reach it. Right. At, At least that's, 
you know, my, my perspective on it. I totally agree. I do. I, I don't, I, what exactly like is happiness? I don't know. I'm not in search of anything like that. I'm in search of peace and goodness and like right now everything is kind of like status quo with my kid you know I like that there's no big drama I mean I feel I guess maybe it would be happy but for the first time in a long time because um everything is going pretty decent with my kids and the way that they want it to be and you know, the work feels really good. I'm writing more for this magazine. I really enjoy telling the stories of the local people, my neighbors, you know. Stories like that are so much fun for me to tell. I've interviewed so many really cool local people that have opened my eyes to so much cool stuff right here. And that feels kind of full circle and good to me. Like, I don't need to go out. You know, I feel like I've I've covered all those national, international, kind of even local stories. And now I'm so, so, so hyper-local. I'm in PD. And it's fun. You're covering community stories. Yeah, it feels really nice. You know, it kind of goes back to what I was saying with this podcast is that in covering community and covering the people that you admire and bringing those facets to the forefront and sharing them with other people, it creates a bigger community. It it really brings people closer together. And I think those are really important stories. I want to think that they're really, really important stories too. I it, I think when when the world is in such a state of chaos, which I feel like it is right now, if you when I can really dial down to my own front yard and make a difference right here and really close to home, it brings more peace. Like I can't make a difference. I feel like maybe on a big global scale right now, so much stuff is happening that's just heartbreaking and that I can't even wrap my mind around. So I can take that energy and bring it right here in front and tell the story that I just wrote, which is going to be in the next issue of the magazine. I interviewed a a quadriplegic woman who was paralyzed in a gymnastics accident when she was five. And she has the most beautiful life. She's lived a life of adventure. She's, she's so inspiring. And she's an artist. And you know, she uses a, a mouse toothbrush and she blows in the electric chair to get her around. But she is full of sunshine and sweet and bright and just sharing her story and being around her, I feel like, wow, if just maybe 10 people read about her, maybe they'll feel good or they'll see that maybe what's in front of them is not nearly as terrible as it could be, you know? It's energizing to hear those stories. Yeah. I think that there's stories that the world needs to hear. It's kind of like, you know, when I'm listening to you talking about, your news career, you started out locally, and then you expanded out further and further so that you were doing more national stories and even global stories going, you know, covering the Olympics and things like that. 
And now you have gone completely in the opposite direction where you're hyper focusing. And I think that, I think that that has been the trend over the last many years in news and journalism is to keep expanding out. And it's hard when all of the focus is out on the perimeter to actually make your voice heard where there's not as much of this hyper-focus, there's not as much of this community building going on anymore. You kind of like tend to be on the forefront of what the trends are. And I think that's really awesome ability to have to be able to go, all right, you know, where is there a need and how can I fill it? I mean, I don't know if it's on the trends. I feel like it's, I don't want to say selfish, but I'm, I feel like I've turned much more. It, I can't handle the big stuff that much. So I'm really more into the local focus, the self-focus, the community focus. I changed my news habits. I stopped the way that I consume the news and the way I even would even consider covering the news or anything. And I changed so much because I changed my news habits and my, my just really so many things because it was just too heavy. You know, remember how the news cycle was so stressful? I mean, mm-hmm. every day you would wake up and you wouldn't know what had gone on or I mean, maybe it was just me because I have such a, a news background and everything, but I mean, there was things happening that I couldn't wrap my mind around. And it felt so hopeless and hard for me that my way of dealing with that was to focus on my home, focus on myself, focus on my life, focus on my kids, my family, focus, focus close to home. And this is what it has like evolved into. So it's a blessing in disguise in a lot of ways because I'm much more peaceful than I was. Here I am standing and I'm better (laughs) off in a lot of ways. (laughs) Yeah, we've gone through so much and you have to, you know, kind of uh, digest the issue, just really sit with these things that are so difficult for us and try to figure out how do I move on from there? What are the what are the pearls of wisdom that I can hang yeah. on to and then I can get rid of the rest of it and move forward. And I think that, you know, it's, it's like walking through fire, you know, you, you come out polished on the other side in a right. way and you also come out damaged in a way. It definitely, I mean, but it does make you stronger and it changes your perspective. It definitely changes your perspective and it really, it goes, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, man. Right. <laughs> That's, it, it, really, it, it goes to that because I never thought that this country could become that, nor did I ever, I never dreamt about that I, I would see a global pandemic in my life. You know, these are things that knock us off of our center. Right. I think it was, you know, complete chaos. Of course, you're watching people walk out with 15 packets of 36 rolls yeah, of toilet paper. Right. The hoarding. Right. And uh, I hardly ever go to the big box stores, but I did because I thought I better buy stuff because I was worried that there wasn't going to be anything at the market. I know. There was that that went on. I had 
a dear friend who passed away on the, the morning of March 13th, the same day that we shut down. I remember making the announcements at the end of the school day, you know, and we all had uh-huh. to be out by uh-huh. noon. And I just remember the countdown, everybody, you've got, you know, you've got two hours and then it was, you have an, you know, every half hour after that. Oh and then, yeah. I remember um, the chaos. And, of that. and it was very uncertain, but I call it the big pause. After yeah, that for sure. Because I think everybody went home and in many ways, we were all waiting to either die or to hear about everybody around us dying. And in a way, the world kind of did. You know, there's been like this, um, I wouldn't call it quite as dramatic as the Phoenix rising, but there was definitely the rebirth since that time period. It was a metamorphosis time. I mean, we're lucky in a lot of ways we could look mm-hmm. through it, you know? It's, it's about what you make of it. And I feel like... We have come out the other school. We're lucky. In a lot of ways, we're lucky. I know. How do you think, I mean, like, you know, I've got my perspective from this side. And just for a little bit of reference, I had a small column for a short time in in a local magazine as well. And it was on food and nutrition because I am a former fitness and nutrition coach. And so I really focused on that and dietary habits and, you know, omega-3 fatty acids and DHA and all of that stuff that you should get in your food because it helps your brain or it lowers uh, your risk of various diseases and uh, enhances your performance as an athlete, things like beet juice that increases the oxygen supply in your blood and that sort of thing. But um, as somebody who is on this side of the news, as a viewer, you know, I clearly watch the news differently than somebody who has been in the industry. How do you see news having changed in the way that it's reported since you were part of that industry, since you were very heavily in it? Well, the news has changed so much since I started in industry in like the late 80s. And it's changed so much. A, technology has, of course, changed everything about it because the 24-hour news cycle didn't exist when I started, right? I was part of the ground uh, floor of the developing of a 24 hour local news. It didn't exist before. So before the days of CNN, CNN was the first 24 hour cable news service. My husband worked for the very first for Ted Turner when he bought CNN. And it was, uh, that had to be like in the eighties. And so at that time, everybody was like, Ooh, 24 hour news. Who's going to watch that? <laughs> and uh you know we had no everybody thought it was the craziest thing it was the big three networks and that was it there was your local news your 6 and 11 p.m news and that was how people consumed news and really all the way up until like the early 2000s it started you know we started with all of the cable news and So once the 24-hour news cycle kind of took over our society, there was no, um, there's no filter. Some of the biggest change that we have seen in news, you could see the coverage of the Vietnam War versus the Gulf War, the first Gulf War. So, of course, in the Vietnam War, 
there were journalists covering them. And as an aside, my grandfather was one of them. Um, he was a still photographer. He was drafted in the army and he was like, okay, well, I'll take pictures. <laughs> so he basically wow. got lucky. Um, but yeah, so back in the day, they had to, they would shoot the, the, the footage and shoot the film and then they would have to develop it and then they would put it on like a transport and it would come back to the United States where we would broadcast it from here. And so you would see what was happening in Vietnam the next day usually or something like that, you know, or two days later. So there was a delay, a really significant delay. And within that delay is when all the decision making happens. That's when we decide what we're going to put up, what's not, we're not going to show. Are we going to show faces? Are we going to show names? What are we going to do? And that's how we consume the news. So then the Gulf War comes around and it's the invention and the, the beginning of the satellite. So for the first time, we're seeing live action out in the in the war, like we're seeing battles and we're seeing front row tickets to the bullets flying, right? No, we've never seen, you know, the, the way like in the Gulf War, we saw bodies falling and then we saw for the first time, it was a really big deal. The transport planes are bringing home all the dozens and dozens of bodies covered in the flags. And we, when we cover Vietnam, we would never have had shown that. I mean, we would see that in the newsroom, we would see that on their films, but we would never have broadcast that. Then there comes the satellite and the 24-hour news cycle is invented. And we have no filter anymore on our news. So anybody with an uplink and the ability can broadcast. And there's no decision-making, there's no filters. And now everything that's broadcast everything, whether it's cable, satellite, anything, it's all biased. One way or another, it's all biased. Back in the day before the satellite, before the 24-hour news cycle, you had rooms of people making daily news decisions, and it was unbiased. It was a, it was a newsroom full of news journalists and people who cared and were discerning and really decided, I mean, that was a big difference. And so nowadays, we are reactionary. You know, the news is reactionary to what happens. There's a, a fire, so we launch the helicopters and we go cover it. It doesn't matter what it is, they cover it. And it's way different than, than it was before the 24-hour news cycle, for sure. Yeah, I think that there's definitely this high stress. I I go through spurts. I for the most part, do not watch the news. And if I do, mm -hmm. I'll watch the first few minutes of it because I want to get the, the local news. Um, but otherwise, I don't tend to watch a lot of it. And, and what I do see is that there is a lot of bad news. Oh, that, my God. That seems to yeah. take up the majority of the news hour is that you're getting, you know, they run out of bad local news. Yeah. And then you start hearing about a murder 3,000 miles away from you and you get sucked into it. And then you realize exactly. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, of course you are saddened by it. Of course you're shocked by it. But of what immediate value to my safety is knowing that somebody was murdered 3,000 miles away? You know, it's like, that's what I'm saying. It's There's nothing discerning about what they're throwing out onto the satellite. Anytime there is video available for anything, I mean, we have to compete. It's all about the competition. You know, whoever gets it first is the, the prize winner, right? And so then the video goes viral. And it's, but to what end? And the viral video thing is a real kind of a, an interesting thing. Another huge thing is social medias and phones. I mean, there was no such thing, right? There's a there's an immediacy in uh-huh. being able to film something and a lot of power right. in being able a to, to film something being the first or the being first. able to show something that would otherwise not be shown. Yeah. And oh, I yeah. mean, there's, there's also some good qualities about it because... Well, you- I mean, that's true this is one thing is i always in the news i always wanted to be first i always wanted my ratings to be first we paid close attention to the ratings i always wanted to have the first video i when i was producing i wanted to lead my show with what i thought was the best video of the day most of the time that means you know what's the best uh video think about it think about it it would be i mean my pleasure with somebody else's demise and start to really wear on me because I'm like, oh, that's really great that that dog saved the baby from drowning and that baby's really cute. But the house fire where the whole thing explodes and, you know, that's better video. So that's what we have to lead with. I mean, that's, <laughs> there's a, there a factor, like the consumer consumption of news has exponentially multiplied because of course the younger generation like you know our kids are 20 so that's like their generation they have there's so much technology that we didn't have so they consume news in such a hugely different way than we ever did right right so you have to think about that too the way that your daughter consumes her news on a daily is different than you know, you or me, because we are, we have different habits. We are brought up with different technologies. I mean, there was no such thing as TikTok. If you want to get in touch with your friend, you know, you couldn't text her. You had to talk to her at school or something. It was a way different world is what I'm saying. I didn't watch the news when I was that age. That wasn't like on my radar. But these guys have access to 24-7 information. Twitter, these things are around the clock information overload. That's where we are. The news is no longer the news. There's such a blurry line between news and social media. And we are like, we live so publicly now, right? We used to not live that way. It's true, you know, and I'm (laughs) speaking of that immediacy and that, that instantaneous quality of you get filmed and you end up on you know like you don't know if you're going to be on a youtube video if you're going to be somewhere on the internet and you know like thank god that we grew up prior to having that (laughs) deep lack of privacy that that exists today yeah you know i mean if you don't if you're a young kid in your 20s and you you know, are not on this, like the, 
Um, my son has no social media, for example, but he's he's in a way different realm than my daughter that has every social media 24 seven. Mm-hmm. You know, yet they're only two years apart. So very different. But he reads, he reads. And so that's how he really, he reads like the New Yorker and long reads. And it, I'm just saying there's, the news is, it means something so much, you know, different than it used to, at least to me. The scope of, of places that you can get your news yeah. has widened exponentially for sure. And, you know, when you mentioned that your son doesn't have any social media at all, that seems to be a new trend that's that's happening now is the saturation of social media. And there's people that are going on these social media diets yep. and trying to eliminate it from their lives because it is so distracting and there is a depressive quality about having, you know, that they've run these studies uh, about how, about being so, um, so focused on getting your entertainment, getting your information, getting your stimulation from your phone. <laughs> yes, I, I agree. It's such a different, you know, I hate, I sound like my mother, right? Or my grandmother or whatever. I'm like, but, but it's such a different world today. But it is, it really it is. is. If you just Take the technology alone, take that one piece alone and leave everything else behind. I mean, what we had when we were, I mean, in high school, as compared to what our kids have when they're in high school, is compared to what the kids today have in high school. It's amazing how huge these leaps are. They are. Yeah. Every time that technology progresses, it's a faster cycle in turning over. So the gap becomes smaller and smaller. Um, well, and then you were just talking about books. So um, I wanted to go back to the the whole aspect of being a librarian and just um, what are the stories that really fuel your fire that, that gets you excited and that you've seen perhaps have the biggest impact on kids or have the biggest impact on you that really just um, fuels your love for reading? Well, I mean, there's so much about my experience as a librarian that's like fulfilling. Watching kids read, I love watching and knowing like the secret reading habits of the kids. That should be the title of my book. I know your secret reading habits. <laughs> That's I, a great I title. Like I don't, I pretend like I'm not paying attention to the title and, or to who you are. I look at every detail. I look at your reading history. I look at the title you're taking out. I look at all the titles you've had before. Like I know all these kids reading history. So what I super enjoy being able to say, oh, you know what? If you like that book, I have a great idea. And then I can show the kid and he's like, oh yeah, that's good. And then he returns, he's like, oh yeah, that one was really good. I'm going to do another one just like that. It's like those kinds of connections really mean a lot to me. And I enjoy that so much. The kids really like the library and um, I take credit for that. I think it's a great atmosphere in there. I want it to be fun for them and like an open, you know, I want it to be a quiet place because sometimes I think it gets loud out there and school is just like, oh, mm-hmm. and they burst in and all he needs to really do is just come in, 
maybe sit down and look at a Guinness Book of World Records and laugh at the lady's longest fingernails in the whole wide world. <laughs> and I feel like it's a respite for some of these kids. Not all of them, but... Oh, it is. I remember I was the biggest bookworm, just like a huge nerd when I was a kid. I loved reading. And I think it started with the school librarian. Yeah, that's so nice. In second grade, the librarian, I think she had, I don't know if this is what she recommended, but I do remember reading like Jonathan Livingston Siegel Mm -hmm. at that time. And then I saw James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl. And she said, oh, you know, I just think that's that's a little above your level. Anytime anybody says anything like that, it's like, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Really? (laughs) Just watch me. so funny that is so funny like I would never do that so you come in and you want to read something and that I think is so far out of here like I'll give you an example I had a kid who comes in and he wants to read Moby Dick so he asked me do you have Moby Dick I was like I do are you gonna read Moby Dick this is a kid who's usually reading the wimpy kid I'm like okay yeah we have it you know you want to read it he's like yeah I want to read it like, okay, I need the knowledge. So he goes out and he gets the book. I'm like, all right, like, wait a minute. <laughs> no, so I said, what's the deal with this? Like, why do you want to read this book? Who who suggested this? Where'd you get this idea? He's like, my dad thinks it'd be good for me. I go, this book, this book, it, 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 my dad thinks it'd be good for me. I really want to be successful. My dad thinks it'd be a good book for me to read that I could be. <laughs> oh my goodness. I was like, okay, all right, here's what I'm going to say. I'm gonna, let me give you this book instead. And, uh, you know, I was like, let's talk about the kind of stuff that you read. So we look at his reading history and literally it's like the diary of the wimpy kid. And I'm like, all right, what else do you like to do? And I, we, we talked for a second and he like laughed. He's like, I, I mean, he brings it up. And, you know, this it's like a 900-page book. And I have this old copy of it. Most adults don't want to <laughs> read that I book. Said. I mean, I'm talk like, about a book that you're going to give a child to totally <laughs> discourage them from ever reading. So I, I didn't want to say, like, that's, uh, like, way above your level or anything. I'm like, okay, well, here's what I think we should do. I'm going to let you take this book home to to your dad and show your dad that you came in and talked to me about it. But I want you to take this book home and I want this to be your free reading book in school. And you can take that one home to your dad and tell your dad at school you're reading another book. He's like, oh, yeah, okay. So turns out his dad's (laughs) like, dude, I didn't really mean that you should read Moby Dick. I meant you need to read some literature, like something good. Like, I'm so glad that you found this other book and that you're reading this other book at school. Like, I'm not telling you to read Moby Dick. You know, it was like a misunderstanding. He just took it literally. Exactly. He must have said something like, listen, you need to read more books like Moby Dick instead of that junk, you know, or something. I just enjoy the interactions with the kids. I really do. Uh, it's what it's all about. It's, I don't know how it is. It's like a weird thing that I know so much about the books that are in the library. I, I haven't really read them all. I've read a lot of them, but I walk around and I read as I shelve or I read the backs of them. Sometimes I pick up a book and I, like if I'm shelving and I'll open it right in the middle and read like a chapter, <laughs> you know? So I, I exposed to like a whole ton of books. A kid says, 
yeah, I don't really like to read. Like, I have to read, but I don't know. I'm like, well, do you like animals? Do you like sports? Or do you, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? What would be a fun job for you? And then I try to steer them, like, towards more of the, the classics so that they can get exposed to something that's, like, good and engaging. And then when they bring it back, they're like, oh, yeah, that was really good. And then I feel like, oh, that's good. It's all in a day's work. That's good with me. Those are some really good questions. You know, it's funny because I can devour books. And honestly, I, I probably read more when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. I was just like everything that I could get my hands on. I was just this avid reader. And I think maybe after I had kids, I got so busy yeah. with having to read their homework and, you know, figuring out what they were doing at school. And I think it's super common. Yeah, you, you just get really busy guiding them through their lives. Yeah, you you have time. to figure out what their world is like. Yeah. And so you kind of set the books aside. And so what I find is that when I try to get back into it, it can be a struggle yeah. sometimes because reading really is kind of an exercise of conditioning. Mm -hmm. And so what are some of the tips? Because like you said, this is really common and there's yeah. a lot of people out there who probably have that stack, that ever growing stack, yeah. you know, they're like, book collectors instead of book readers. <laughs> what are some of the tips for, <laughs> for, um, for readers to try to get back into that habit? I always ask a person, what was the last book that they really enjoyed? What do you remember? Uh, uh, tell me about the last book that you love. And usually they can come up with, I'm like, okay, what book was that that you liked? And then I will then go with the direction of that author and look for some book by uh, that author. And then if there's nothing else by that author, I would look for a similar author. Um, because I think that's a really good way to know that you'll enjoy that book. It's like, usually if you read a book that just really impacted you, then there's something else by that author will probably you would enjoy. There's also websites that there's this, uh, like, oh. what should I read next? kind of website or there's something called like witch book um, where you can input the name of the author and the title and you know similar to title author search and it'll say similar to this title are these three titles so yeah, I would always say if you think about it when you're out and about create like a little reading list of things and go with something that sparks your interest like oh you know, I've always wanted to learn like about astronomy. Let's see if we can find a piece of fiction that would have like astronomy in it. I, I always say that in life, you have a lot of material that you must read. All through school, there is going to be required reading. When you get into the workforce, there's going to be required daily reading. There's going to be bills to pay and you have to read. But right now, you rereading so if you don't like it you're not married to it don't finish it you put it in a dns pile and i feel like a lot of people feel married to the book like oh i hate this book i've been trying to read it for six months i'm like don't finish it yeah you know I've I've got a book like that um it's funny because i picked it up somebody 
highly, highly recommended it. Yeah. And, um, and it's a tome. I mean, like that's a oh, doorstop. Boy. And so I picked it up when I was like 16 or 17. I had joined one of those book clubs and uh-huh. I wanted to get more into scholarly reading. So I started to read it and I just couldn't get like past page 20 or right. whatever. So I set it down and then I tried to read it again in my mid 20s. It was kind of like every decade I tried to read it. And I remember of I course. was telling one of my friends <laughs> that I wrote with Matt, somehow it came up and he had finished it. And I said, I've been trying to read this book for decades now just can't get past page 20 25 and he goes I think it's just not the book for you and (laughs) that was the best advice you know and I think it's still um yeah I just turned around to look at my bookcase and it's still in my bookcase I don't know maybe I will try one day forever it's gonna haunt me forever (laughs) yeah no reason that it should no reason that it should here's a reading the five finger rule of reading right do you know what that is I don't what is it okay so if there are five or more words that you don't know in the first paragraph page chapter whatever it is don't read it you're done that book is not for you you need to find probably an easier choice there could be a couple things. Also, if you don't like, so I always do the five finger rule for these kids. That's a good for an early reader. I'm like, That's if there's five advice. words that you don't know, no, then let's choose something else. So that's a really good one for the kids. That's a good one for everybody. Because I know some friends that are like, oh yeah, I read that. I read that. I'm like, oh, you did not. You know, <laughs> don't just BS and say you did. Because I know you didn't, but it's okay. I, I'm not judging you. I don't care what you read. <laughs> I think that you and I are so like, because I do write and we're both like really creative and, and, and you know, we love <laughs> books. We love writing. We love the English language. And I'm so opposite of uh-huh. that, where if I come upon a word that I don't know, I get so excited and I go and grab the dictionary or uh-huh. or something that a, a word that I've heard, but I don't regularly use. Right. You don't use it and you're not familiar with it. Yeah. I try to add it to that, that internal lexicon that I have. Yeah. I know. I'm like that too. And that, my kids are super articulate. I, I don't mean not to brag or anything, but yeah, I always talk to my kids. Mm-hmm. I, I spoke to them like they were full-blown people from the word go. Right. I think that's really important to do that. Um, I had a question because I have noticed that sometimes when you're cleaning the shelves in the library, you have your headphones in. So mm-hmm. those are audiobooks that you're listening to. And how do you feel about audiobooks versus hardbound books? Well, I believe there is a place for everybody and everything. So, I mean, you know, the escalator didn't replace the stairs. I don't know. I think we can coexist. I am, I am often listening to an audiobook, reading a hardcover, like in my living room, reading um, maybe another hardcover or a different library book maybe in my bedroom and reading two or three books at work. And so if the best way for you to read is to listen, I say, go for it. Put in those headphones and start listening. 
I think they are really fantastic. And especially for auditory learners. I really do. Um, since my son was born, he's 29. When he was born, we started playing for him um, every single cassette tape. And before he went to sleep at night, we would put in the recording and he would fall asleep. And uh, it, it made such an impact on him that he used to repeat the story. He repeated it so verbatim that he used to repeat the turn the page. And I was like, that is so adorable. Wow. That means that it's like soaking into his brain. So, so from that moment forward, I was like, wow, audiobooks are the best thing ever. Turns out he's a musician. He is a translator. He's very auditory. I mean, it's kind of interesting if you really think about it. That is. That's fascinating. Do you have a favorite book that you tend to give out as a gift? I give books primarily as gifts, uh, but I base it on the person. On the person. So just getting back to kind of a little bit of that journalistic path, you have managed to merge your love of journalism and your love of books and the writing process into a personal history service. It's called Legends and Legacies. And you painstakingly capture personal stories through an extensive interview process, which goes back to your journalism roots. And as the primary historian, you write the books using your journalistic expertise that is not only, you know, a masterpiece, but often worth reading by people who are not connected to the person, and they become really unique family keepsakes. What inspired you to to start doing these beautiful books for people? Well, I've met some really incredible people along the way. And again, it goes all the way back to storytelling. I did the very first book I did was my dad. And uh, I think even before that, my grandmother, uh, beloved grandmother, and she was um, 93 years old, and I found myself like jotting down notes of her life and notes about her, and thinking, "Wow, I wish I, I would, I wish I could write her story," or maybe thinking that in the back of my mind. I don't know. I just remember writing like stuff down about her and I, a journal, and I just thought, "Oh, it would be cool if I could write." my dad's story so years ago he came out it was just me and him we spent like a whole week together and I wrote this book and it was like really cool and everybody loved it and I self-published it and I was like hey that's a good idea everybody has a story and I think it's really really important to tell your story no matter what it is and I love sharing stories and hearing stories and writing stories and so it's a really natural thing for me. And how long does it take you to put together something? Because this is a very intimate, detailed project, right? Yeah. (laughs) It takes a long time. So I just, just finished a project that we started last August. I wrote a 98-year-old woman and met her a couple times. Some can take a year. I mean, it takes a long time. I interview you and then I transcribe the interviews and then I turn it into a narrative story and then we get pictures and documents, whatever you want to include, and then we bind it. So it's a process. That is so beautiful. I could see how this would be just a very special keepsake for people. It's a wonderful gift to a family. 
So I'm working now with a, the father passed away in COVID. It's a brother and sister. They're like the you know adult children, and their mother had a very very interesting life. And the, the mom it's like her 85th birthday, so they're going to be doing a, her memoirs. I'll start interviewing her. I'm you know coming up here, and we'll do her story. And so I said I think it'll probably take about a year. To by the time I get all the interviews and everything, but I would work with anybody who had a tight timeline. If there was a birthday or an event coming up, I can always, you know, that's one thing that my broadcast career has made me very fast writer, very fast. That's true. So that's one thing, fast and accurate. That's why the magazine work is so great for me because I can do it pretty quickly. And we rely so much on on the clock and the calendar these days. I mean, I know we always know, have, but it God. seems like you know everything's yeah. like everything's. I want it yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. And I just <laughs> wanted to ask you one more thing: yeah. if you had anyway. one thing to share with the world, what would it be? Stories and books wash away the dust of everyday life. So read, you know, when everything's falling down around you, read. I love that. (laughs) I agree. It just reminds me of something. I think it was Neil Gaiman who said that books are the fastest way to go on a long distant trip without having to leave your home. Heck yeah. And I just think they're one of the greatest escapes. So I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, Well, I do see so many more awards in your future. I think you're truly inspiring. You're doing some really beautiful things. I am excited that I got to spend this time with you and and that I get to count you among some of my dearest friends. Gosh, I really enjoyed this so much. I'm really grateful. So thank you. Yeah, I'm honored that you're here. There was so much good information in that episode, whether it's reducing information consumption in favor of personal peace and sanity, or finding a great book. And don't forget, if you're frustrated with a book that you just can't finish, just put it down. Life is too short and there's just way too many books out there for you to spend time on something you don't like. As always, I will post links to everything that we talked about in the show notes. And please continue to send me your questions and suggestions. I love hearing from you. Don't forget to take a moment to rate this episode. It only takes seconds and your ratings will help move this podcast up to the top so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more in the company of friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trail podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E podcast. I am Syl Annan, the Queen Trail. And until next time, I wish you passion, grace, good vibes, good news, amazing books, elegance and beauty. 